This is an audio sermon recorded at the Church of Christ at Johnson Mill in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 3801 Johnson Mill Boulevard. 1 Peter 4, verse 17 and 18. Peter said, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Peter's raised several questions here about the salvation of mankind at judgment. In doing so, he made a contrast of different groups of people that will be there on that occasion. And there on the left top, I want you to look at his contrast that he made. He said, The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. What is the house of God? What is it? In 1 Timothy 3 and 15, Paul told Timothy, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the house of God is the church. Peter could have just as easily said, the time has come that judgment must begin at the church. In fact, that's really what he said. But notice the contrast. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Look at this contrast. He has contrasted the house of God with them that obey not the gospel. He has a contrast between us and them, between the righteous and between the ungodly and the sinner. So he has the us, the righteous at the house of God, contrasted with them that obey not the gospel, the ungodly and the sinner. It's quite a contrast, isn't it? And then he raised some questions that I want us to look at. A couple of questions. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, he said. If it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? He raises that question. What's going to happen to people? who do not obey the gospel. And Paul answered that question. There on the back in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 to 9, He said unto you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Have you obeyed the gospel today? If you haven't obeyed the gospel, you're going to be punished with everlasting destruction if you don't. And people that we know that haven't obeyed the gospel, this is the reason we need to be telling them and teaching them what the gospel is and how you obey it. These people are going to be destroyed. They're going to be punished with everlasting destruction. He raised another question here. He said, If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? What happens to the ungodly and the sinner, he asked. And David answered that in Psalm 1, verse 5 and 6. David said, Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. What happens to the sinner, to the ungodly? They perish, you see. So it's easily seen there's different groups that will be at the judgment, and the sentence that's meted out to these groups are going to be different. And so I want to study with us today 
different groups at the judgment. We'll talk about some of those groups. We'll identify some of them. We'll talk about the sentence that's given in some of those cases and look at those closely. But before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the judgment. And in particular, I want to talk about the judge himself, his qualifications, his identity, his character, his knowledge, how suited he is to be the judge of living and dead. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the standard of judgment. And then we'll move on to talk about some of the different groups. When we think about the judge, who's going to judge us? That's simply going to be the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, he's identified there. Paul said to Timothy, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. The word quick there means living. The Lord Jesus has then been appointed to judge the living and the dead at His appearing in His kingdom. Jesus will be that judge. Now we might ask ourselves, is He qualified? Is Jesus really the best judge that God could find? Folks, I don't know how He could find anyone any better. I believe God could search the universe and never find a judge like Jesus. I don't think we could imagine anybody that is even close to the ability that Jesus is going to have to serve as the judge of the living and dead, to judge all of humanity. And there are many reasons why that's the case. Jesus, you see, is unique. He's unlike no one in this universe. Uh, he's, he's, uh, he's unlike His Father in one sense in that He's part man. Jesus is both God and man, and He's the only individual in the universe that is God and man in one. There's nobody like this. There's plenty of men, and there's one God, of course. But how many do we find that's both God and man? That's Jesus, see. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8. Paul said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus then, we're told, is like God, that He's equal with God. The Bible says in Colossians 2 and 9, For in Him Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The whole Godhead bodily resides, all the fullness of it resides in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says here that He's God and that He thought, him, he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And then it says that He made Himself of no reputation, took upon Him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. So now Jesus is like God and like man. And here's why that's critical, why that's important. He knows God's side of everything. He is God. So He knows how God thinks. He knows what God's nature is. He knows God's laws. He knows how God views humanity, how God views sin, how God views everything. He has that divine perspective from God's viewpoint, just like the Father does. But more than that, He knows about us. He knows what it's like to live in a body like this, to be confined in flesh, because He lived in flesh over 33 years. So Jesus knows. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be tired. knows what it's like to be hungry knows what it's like to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to be weary. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one and to experience sorrow. He knows what pain is. 
He knows how it is to be tired. He just knows everything that you and I experience in this body because He's lived in it like we do. So you see, He's going to know our side of things quite well, and then He's going to know the divine side of everything. How could you find anybody that's a better judge than that? That's any more qualified than what the Lord will be? That knows God's side of everything and His perspective, and knows man's side of everything. There couldn't possibly be anyone, no man, no angel, no one in heaven that could be found any better than Jesus Christ to be the judge of living and dead. He is both God and man. But secondly, the Lord's righteous. He's just. 2 Timothy 4 and 8, Paul said, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. How many judges today do we find that are just and righteous? Don't we get tired of criminals brought into our court systems? And just because of who they know, or how much money they have, or what office they have, or who they're kin to, sometimes judgment's different for them than it is other people, see. And we've got different tiers of judge justice in this country. We have people that aren't even put on trial. They're not even judged because of who they are. The crimes that they've committed are obvious, but they don't ever get judged. They don't get punished. No one takes a look at them. And yet, if any of us that are lower in, in caste and everything were to commit such things or do such things, we'd be brought before a judge and probably thrown in prison. Jesus is not going to be like that. He's a righteous judge. And here's what we need to understand about Him, that when we come before Christ, it's not going to matter who we are. And so these presidents and congressmen and senators, these CEOs of companies, these people that hold high office, folks of high wealth and privilege, people that are well connected, that's not going to make one difference to the Lord Jesus. When we stand before Him, the color of our skin won't make a bit of difference. How handsome or how ugly we've been, how much property we've owned, what office we've held, our, how esteemed we are before men, none of that stuff will make a difference with the Lord because in Romans 2.11 the Bible says there is no respect of persons with God. He doesn't care who we're kin to. He doesn't care what, what position we've held or not held. It will not make one bit of difference. In other words, He can't be bribed. He will not pervert judgment because of who we are. Our dad could be an elder in a congregation or a preacher. It wouldn't make any difference. And neither will being an elder or a preacher if we haven't fulfilled those responsibilities. And so it won't matter with Jesus. He will do what's right. And so we're dealing here with a righteous judge. And we need to understand if we think that we're somebody special and that Jesus views us a little bit different than maybe He does anybody else, we might be very surprised about that. He will take every person upon who they are and how they've lived and consider that against the will that He's given, and He'll make the righteous decision about where we spend eternity, and, and He will not pervert judgment to do it. And incidentally, the Lord is qualified because He's got all knowledge. When we think about coming into a court of justice here in this country, we have a jury that gets seated. Witnesses are brought in by the attorneys, both the prosecutor and the defense, and they present evidence and they present testimony, and this jury sits there and listens. 
and they weigh all of that, and the judge gives them certain guidelines so they can render decisions. And they bring back what they've concluded, and that's delivered to the judge, and then the judge makes this final verdict and decision. There's a whole lot of testimony and evidence. There's phone records. There's all kinds of business records and bank records and, and many, many kinds of evidences, photos and things that are brought in to courtrooms and presented as evidence and testimony. Jesus won't need that. You see, this judge already has the evidence. He's the judge and the jury. And he already knows the situation. He doesn't need anybody to come tell him about Pat Manning. He already knows me knows everything about me, in fact knows me better than I do. And he won't need any evidence or testimony about you or, or your loved ones or anyone else. He won't need somebody to vouch for your character or to, to come in and say things about you or bring certain pieces of evidence. None of that will be needed because he'll have all the evidence. In John 2 verse 24-25, The Bible says, But Jesus did not commit Himself unto them, because He knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for He knew what was in man. We read in the Bible many instances where the Lord would be teaching and His enemies would be present. Remember how they'd get away from, the, from, from hearing out of earshot, and uh, they'd huddle up in little groups and they'd conspire against Jesus. And they'd be sitting there plotting. They'd be saying, now, if we say this, He's going to say that. On the other hand, if we say this, well, He's going to say that. And they were plotting, thinking they could trick Jesus in some way. And when they'd get through with their plot and their reasoning, Jesus would look at them and say, Why reason ye in your hearts? Or why think ye evil in your hearts? He was reading them like yesterday's newspaper. You know, I can't imagine standing up here preaching to people where I can read your hearts and know your thoughts right now, what you're thinking about me or, or, or just anything that's going through your mind. You might be thinking, where am I going to eat later on? Or what am I going to do this afternoon? What have we got planned? I don't know where your mind is right now. But Jesus, when He preached, when He looked out at His audience, can you imagine reading the hearts of everybody you're speaking to? If they've got an evil thought about Him, He picks it up immediately. He knows exactly what they've thought. If they're even thinking about His words, if their mind's somewhere else, can you imagine speaking to people and being able to know them that, that intimately? Every thought they entertain. When we come before this judge, then He's going to know every thought that's ever gone through our mind. He's going to know every word that's come out of our mouth already. He's going to know every deed that we've done. Think about that. We're going to stand in front of a person that's going to know everything we've thought, everything we've said, and everything we've done. And all of that will be known to Him. We read in Hebrews 4.13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. So when we stand before Christ, every one of us individually, He's going to know our life Things that we've forgotten, He's going to know. Things we said we don't even remember. He could construct every word of it, every syllable. That's the kind of judge that we've got to stand in front of. And I think it's good to think about that. That this is who's going to be examining our lives. This, this God and man, this Jesus, 
this unique individual in the universe. Nobody like him. This one that's completely righteous and just. This one that has all knowledge of our case and everybody else's case. He will know who we have maybe defrauded or who we've interacted with that we didn't treat well. And there's that person standing there and here we are in front of the judge. He's going to know that situation. If I've wronged a brother or sister in Christ, if I've defrauded somebody, done them wrong in any way, he'll know that. He'll know every good deed that we've done. That's, that's nice to know. Just as small as a cup of water given in his name, he'll remember that. He'll know that and he'll, he'll take stock of that. And that's why we've talked continually about you and I not standing in front of the Lord with sin in our life. That we can't afford to come before the judgment seat of Jesus and be guilty of any sin because that sin's going to come out. And so it all needs to be forgiven before we get to judgment. Because if our sin's not forgiven, we're going to give an account for it and we're going to have to go to the lake of fire and pay the penalty, which is the second death. And so we can't afford to stand before this judge, you see, guilty of anything. Let's think about those things. Let's think about this judge and this great judgment that's coming. So we've looked at the judge. He is Jesus. We know that He's just and righteous. We know that He's, he's uh, going to be fair in everything. He's like God. He's like man. He knows those sides. We know His character. And we know that He has knowledge of everything in our lives. Now the next question that follows is, what is the standard of judgment? How would He judge me and you? Well, He's got to judge all of humanity. There was a time between Adam and Moses when there was no written law. People back in the day, age of the patriarchs for about the first 2,500 years that man was on earth, man had no written law. And the Lord will take that into account and the people that lived under that kind of situation, He'll judge them according to that. People that have no law, that just do by nature things that are contained in God's law. That the Bible calls in Romans 2 verse 14 to 16 the law in the heart. He will judge those people in that fashion. There are people uh, beginning with the law of Moses when it was given up to the death of Christ for about 1,500 years that lived under the Mosaic system, the law of Moses. They'll be judged according to that because that's the law they were under. The New Testament wasn't revealed yet, see. But you and I that live in this day and time will be judged by the words of Jesus, by the things of the New Testament. We're in a covenant relationship with Him and this is our covenant. And we read in John 12, verse 48 and 49, Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father which sent me, he gave me a commandment what I should say and what I should speak. So we're going to be judged by the words of Jesus. Now just think about this for a minute. Judgment Day is going to be a day of surprise, I think, for a lot of people. First of all, there are going to be people that, uh, because they do not study the New Testament Scriptures, and we have a lot of ignorant people today. I'm not saying they're, they're idiots. They're not idiots. They're very smart people, very capable of learning. But I'm talking about people that are willingly ignorant of God's Word because they won't study the Word. They've got it in their home. They have access to it, but they don't know what's in this book. And a lot of these are religious people. They go to some kind of church service, some of them three or four times a week. We have a lot of people that are ignorant of God's Word. And I think on the Day of Judgment there's going to be a lot of surprises. 
there's going to be people surprised to know that the Lord demanded things of them they didn't even know about. They had no idea that He wanted that because they wouldn't look into His Word. And on the other hand, there'll be people that will be shocked because there are things that displeased the Lord, and they didn't know that those things displeased Him because they wouldn't study the Bible. They don't have a clue about what they're about to face in the Day of Judgment because they're ignorant of this book. And you and I can't afford to come before this judge and not know what's in the New Testament. This is the standard by which we'll be judged. So we can't afford to be ignorant of this book. And that means we need to give a lot of time, a lot of our time, and probably more than we're doing, to a study of this Word. We've got 168 hours every week. 168 hours. If we work a 40-hour week or so, we've still got a lot of time left. Now, admittedly, a lot of that time we've got to rest and there are other things we've got to do. But we can't afford to take a, a, a small amount of time each week in the study of the Word. How much time, if, as you think about your life, would you say you spend studying every week? You've got 168 hours. Let's break that down to every day. How much would you say you study God's Word every day? Interesting question, isn't it? And that's, that's the way it'll be for a lot of people. There'll be just a lot of people that don't have the knowledge, let's say, that you do or I do. And maybe we need more than what we've got. But the Word of God will be the standard there at the Day of Judgment, and a lot of people will be surprised. The Lord will demand things they never even knew He wanted because they wouldn't study. Now for the rest of our time, let's talk about some of these groups. We know the judge. We know the standard of judgment. I want to mention about four different groups that will be there. One of them will be the first group we mentioned. That's the house of God, the righteous. Peter described them in 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18. The time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? He says the righteous will scarcely be saved. Now that, that means exactly probably what you're thinking. We have an old saying, just by the skin of your teeth. Why don't you run your tongue across your teeth right now and see how much skin you feel? Not too much. Just by the skin of the teeth is a very familiar expression. He said the righteous would scarcely be saved. In fact, Jesus said just a few people are going to make it. Very few people will be saved. I don't know what that number is, but I know it's very few in comparison to all that's ever lived. We've got seven and a half billion people probably right now on the earth. How many do you think would be saved today if Jesus came? Imagine that. I can think of billions right now lost simply because of what their religion is, because they don't have Jesus in their religion. Think of the Muslim world. They don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And the Bible says, He that believeth not is condemned already. That's over a billion people right there. So there would literally be billions and billions of people right now condemned to the lake of fire if the Lord came. In Matthew 7, 13 and 14, let's let Jesus say it in His words. Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. 
Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Just a few. Jesus pictured two, two groups, the few and the many, two gates, a wide gate and a straight gate. He mentioned two ways, a narrow way and a broad way, two destinations, life and destruction. So we've got two groups, two gates, two ways, two destinations. And the Lord said just a very few people are going to be saved. Why? Why? There's a parallel statement to this in Luke 13 I want us to read. Luke 13 and verse 24. Words of Jesus again, but this is Luke's record of it. Jesus said, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. That word strive, I put the Greek word down there for you. Strong's word number 75, you'll see in the left bottom. Thayer on page 10 means, says it means to endeavor with strenuous zeal, strive. If we broke it down in simple language today, we would say strain every nerve would be the definition of strive. Give it everything you've got. Strain. Strain every nerve to enter into the straight gate. He said many people will seek to enter in and shall not be able. There's a lot of people that can't enter this straight gate. Let's picture somebody uh, coming to this gate. Let's say we got a man approaching this and he's, he wants to get through this, this uh, straight gate and get on the way to, to life and he carries on his back huge bales of self-righteousness. Self there's plenty of room for him to go through the gate, but there's no room for his self-righteousness, and a lot of people won't drop that, and they won't go through the straight gate. They can't because they're so self-righteous. In other words, they don't need to change their doctrine. They don't need to change their life. There's nothing they need to change. They're all right. People can talk to them about different things. They don't need to hear it. The Lord ran into the Pharisees. They were like this, the religious people of His day. They had everything figured out. They were the righteous, and everybody else was the unrighteous, see? And they were righteous in their own eyes. There's a lot of people like that. And so they've got false doctrines, but they're not going to give them up because they're self-righteous. See, They're not going to make changes that, that needs to be made because they can't humble themselves and drop the self-righteousness, see, to get through the gate. Another fellow comes to this gate, let's say, he wants to go through there and get on the way to life, but he's got, uh, he's got a little problem in his life. He likes the bottle. He loves his alcohol. And there's plenty of room for him, but there's not room for him and his booze. And he won't give up the alcohol. There are just people that way. You can come down to the broad way, to the, to the wide gate, and the self-righteousness and the booze and drugs and anything else can go right on through that gate. But there are a lot of people that are not going to divest themselves of things that hinder them from entering into the gate and getting on the right way. And it's a very narrow group. It's a very narrow way to walk. It's an exclusive way, and a lot of times people that try to walk it stray off of it as well and wind up on the broad way that leads to destruction. Not very many people, the Lord said, are going to be saved. The righteous, Jesus, Peter said, will scarcely be saved. And uh, 
it's going to be difficult. Would we be among that group today? If the Lord came, would He find you and I among the few walking the narrow way that leads to life? That's the question. The second group I want to talk about are those that are religiously wrong. I don't know a better way to say it than that. They're just religiously wrong. Their religion's wrong. And uh, a lot of them don't even know that. Jesus talked about this group. In fact, He gave a very heart-rending scene about them in Matthew 7, verse 21 to 23. Read that with me. Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto Me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of My Father which is in heaven. Now listen. Many will say to Me in that day, Many, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in Thy name? And in Thy name have cast out devils? And in Thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from Me, ye that work iniquity. I want you to think about this group. This is a pathetic group here because these are religious people. These are not drug dealers here. They are not murderers. They are not rapists. These are not adulterers or idolaters. These are these are not thieves. These are church-going people. Look at what they say to Jesus. When they stand before Him, you know, uh, they're going to say, Lord, we have prophesied in Your name. These are preachers. These are teachers. These are Sunday school teachers, Bible school teachers, preachers of all kinds. And they're going to, they're going to ask the Lord for entrance into heaven based on the fact that they prophesied in His name. They've taught in His name. Some of them are going to say, Lord, in Your name we've cast out devils. We did this in Your name. Others are going to say, Lord, in Your name we did many wonderful works. These are folks that visited rest homes and hospitals that took money out of their pockets, very generous amounts of money, and gave large donations to different things, hospitals, and uh, children's homes and orphanages and, and all kinds of things that did many wonderful works, that fed the, the, the hungry and clothed the naked, that gave money to the needy, that helped to help folks that were in need about them. These are folks that went to church two and three times a week and more. They're religious people. These are not folks that are living lives of just open sin here. These are decent people, as we would say, religious, familiar with the name of Jesus, that prophesied in His name, cast out devils in His name, that did wonderful works in His name. What does He say to these people? I never knew you. In other words, you never were mine. You never were my children. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, He will say to these. Imagine, imagine being a person that's been religious all your life, You've gone to church three times a week your whole life. Ever since you were a child you've been taken to church and as you grew older you went on your own. You were devoted to it. You uh, had a ministry of going to hospitals and visiting sick people and doing all kinds of good deeds and works. You read your Bible quite a bit. You talked to other people about Jesus. And you stand before the Lord and He says, Depart from me, I never knew you. That's going to happen, He said to many people. Read Matthew 7 again. Let's, let's really get the import of this. Not everyone that saith unto Me, Lord, Lord, 
shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The Lord knows those that are His. In John chapter 10 and verse 1, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. There are people that tried to get into the Lord's fold among His sheep in a way different than what He commanded. And there's only one way to enter, and that's the way that Jesus gives. Verse 27, Jesus said of John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. See, they don't follow denominational preachers. They don't follow false doctrines. They know Jesus, they know His voice, and they follow Him meaning they follow whatever's in His Word. My sheep, He said, do that. These other sheep don't, see. And that's why we need to examine our religion, because there's so much error and false doctrine in the world today that we can't afford to be mistaken in our religious practices. And there are a lot of people that will not do that. Another group I want to mention, this is the unfaithful Christian. Christians that don't, don't remain faithful. And the Bible says there's a fate waiting on them that's worse than capital punishment. I want you to think about the cruelest form of capital punishment you can think of. We, uh, we think of what ISIS over in the Middle East does to people. The decapitation that takes place, the beheadings. Others burn with fire maybe. Others just tortured. Think of the most horrible form of execution you can think of. Uh, the punishment that's awaiting for an unfaithful Christian is worse than any of that. And we shudder sometimes when we think about what's done to human beings around the earth. Uh, Hebrews 10, read with me verse 28 to 31. Hebrews 10, 28. The Bible says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer or worse punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Look at verse 28. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. That's capital punishment, isn't it? Let's read a case of that out of the Old Testament, one that's pretty severe. And that would be Numbers 15, verse 32 to 36. Numbers 15, 32. The Bible says that while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man that gathered sticks upon the Sabbath day. They that found him gathering sticks brought him unto Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation, and they put him in ward because it was not declared what should be done unto him. And the Lord said unto Moses, The man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones without the camp. And all the congregation brought him without the camp and stoned him with stones, and he died as the Lord commanded Moses. Now I don't know about you, but if I had to pick my way to be executed, it wouldn't be stoning. I just can't imagine being battered with rocks 
until the life is crushed out of you. I can't imagine the cuts and the bruises from those rocks. Uh, just, just how horrible that must be as those rocks are hitting you. Of just stones finally just pump, uh, plummeting you till, till you're just, the life is just out of you. I can't imagine bones being crushed or broken or skin lacerated by these rocks, bruised and battered. I, I think that's a horrible way to die. It's almost inhumane to think about it in a way. And yet that was the punishment the Lord chose for this guy that gathered sticks. And that's all he did. He gathered sticks on the Sabbath. He was just doing a little bit of work there. Somebody says, well, that shouldn't be too bad. Well, the Lord thought it was. And he had the man stoned to death. Now go back to Hebrews 10, 28 in the reading. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy. We just read a case of it right there. He died without mercy unto two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer or worse punishment suppose ye? Shall he be thought worthy who had trodden underfoot the Son of God? And it counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and had done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He talks about people that uh, have trodden underfoot the Son of God, that have counted the blood of the covenant wherewith they were sanctified an unholy thing. We'll drink fruit of the vine this morning to remind us of the blood of Jesus that has sanctified us and justified us and saved us. Can you imagine somebody thinking that this is unholy, this that represents the Lord's blood, His blood? Is something that's just nothing to them. We got all kinds of people that way. There are people that start out and they obey the gospel. They become a Christian. You'll see them at church a few times. After a while, you won't see them. When the church meets, they don't care anything about this blood. They're not here to drink the fruit of the vine to remember it. They've counted the blood of the covenant wherewith they were sanctified an unholy thing. It's nothing to them. Can you imagine letting it get this way in our lives to where this blood absolutely means nothing to us? What Jesus did at Calvary is nothing. The beating that He took is nothing. The life that He gave to save our life, nothing. No wonder the punishment given to the unfaithful Christian is going to be worse than any kind of capital punishment we can imagine. 2 Peter 2, verse 20 to 22. Peter talks of the unfaithful Christian. He says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. We've all seen dogs that have eaten something disagreeable, and they'll, they'll throw it up. And a lot of times, if you are familiar with dogs, they'll go right back to what they threw up, and they'll, they'll lap it up again. They'll take it right back in. And that's what he's talking about on a Christian that leaves the pollutions of the world and then goes right back to the world, 
and takes those things in again and gets entangled in them. He talks about a sow that's been washed, going back to wallowing in the mire. If, uh, if you've ever been around hogs and pigs, you know, you can clean them up and you can take them to the county fair and you can show how slick they look and how pretty you've scrubbed them up and they look all pink and everything and maybe are all fancied up. But what happens when you take them back to the farm? They go right back to the mud, don't they? They go wallow right back in the mud hole. He says that's how some Christians are. They get cleaned up and then they go right back to the filth of the world and they wallow in the things of the world again. And he said the latter end is worse with these people than the beginning. That it would be better not to know the way of righteousness than after you've known it to turn from it. Last group I want to mention, and that's the alien sinner. That's the one that never would become a Christian. That's the one who rejected Jesus and refused to let Him reign over Him. Jesus calls these people enemies. We read there in uh, Luke 19 verse 27, but those mine enemies which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Anyone that won't let Jesus rule over them, the Lord consider them, considers them an enemy. How would you like for Jesus to think of you as an enemy? For Him to consider you as His enemy. That's how He thinks of the rebellious, of people that won't obey His Word, that will not be baptized, that won't become a Christian. They're His enemy. And he said, those that are my enemies that would not that I should reign over them, bring them here and slay them before me. I don't think these people are going to be very anxious to see Jesus, do you? People that aren't Christians. Can you imagine a, can you imagine a non-Christian on Judgment Day when, when the Lord burst asunder the clouds and comes in all of His glory? Do you think any sinner that's living then is going to say, oh boy, Jesus is coming. I get to go be judged by Jesus. No, they don't want to see Jesus. He's the last person they'll want to see. And I, I would imagine that they'll have to be brought. In fact, the Bible seems to imply that angels will be sent to gather them and bring them before the judge. Sometimes we hear of instances in our prisons where people that are on death row, they don't go down to that death chamber willingly. Many times when guards come to get them and take them to the final chamber, they may plant their feet and try to resist, or they'll cry, or they'll plead for mercy. Uh, they'll do anything that they can to try to keep them going down there because they do hate to go down there and die. Some pass out just under the stress of the moment because they, they, uh, they, their, their heart can't stand the idea of having to go down here and be injected with something that's going to bring about their death. And I imagine that it'll be this way for sinners at the judgment. In fact, Jesus talked about angels being sent in Matthew 13, verse 41-42. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. He sends the angels to bring them. These are people that, if they haven't obeyed Christ, are going to wish they could cease to exist right then. That they'd never lived and that they could just be annihilated right there. We read a scene in Revelation chapter 6. This is not the, uh, it's not the final judgment, but uh, verse 15 to 17 of Revelation 6, The kings of the earth, the great men, 
the rich men, the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? These are people, you see, that would rather be buried under a, an avalanche of rocks and dirt, hoping mountains would fall on them and hide them from the face of Jesus. And if you're not saved today, and if you're not a Christian today, that's how it's going to be. You're going to wish that uh, rocks and, and dirt could just bury you alive, and that you could just go out of existence where you didn't have to face Jesus. That's how it's going to be. And there'll be millions and millions and millions of people, if not billions, that are going to feel like they wish they could just cease to exist, many of them wishing that they'd never lived, they'd never been born. What a horrible fate. We read of them in Revelation 14, 10, and 11, though this is not final judgment. It's similar. We read there in Revelation 14, 10, that the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of His indignation. And He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Horrible fate. The smoke of their torment, we're told, ascends up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night. If Jesus were to appear right now, right now, where would he find you? Where would you be? Would you be among the righteous? You'd scarcely be saved. Would you be among the religiously wrong? Jesus would say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Would you be among the unfaithful Christians? Then you would find a fate waiting on you worse than, than uh, any capital punishment you could ever imagine. Death without mercy. Would you be among those that have never obeyed the gospel, never been baptized, never, never become a child of God? You would be praying for mountains and rocks to fall on you and hide you from Christ's face. Instead, you'd find angels coming to drag you before His presence and Him cast you into the lake of fire forever. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. To receive new sermons each week, subscribe on Google Play Music, iTunes, Spotify, and like us on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and God bless.